You can have a seat. And again, if you do have any seats at all next to you that are empty, you got a backpack or a jacket or something, put it underneath and squeeze to the middle or to the sides. There's still people coming in and looking for a seat. And so we appreciate that. It never ends, doesn't it? Whatever it is for you. Maybe you've begun a new school year, and the work that you have to do this year seems harder than ever. Kids, whatever new grade you're in, it may be looking like it's a long year ahead for you. But just wait till college or university when school isn't restricted to only daylight hours. You get up each day and classes and textbooks and projects and labs and deadlines await you. The hard toil of learning never ends. But just wait till you join the workforce and you got to toil away at maybe a tedious job day after day just to make ends meet. And you've only got a, a few weeks off every year, so no more summer breaks for you. The hard toil of work never ends. But just wait till you own a home or have a family. And work isn't restricted to work hours. It's a 24-7 thing now. You've got meals to make and and grass to mow, piles of laundry or dirty dishes, the dog needs walked, the car needs repairs, the baby cries all night long. And then you get to help other people with their schoolwork or homework now. It never ends. But just wait until you're older and you can slow down. Or can you? As you're body starts breaking down and sapping your strength or time or health or energy. You can't do all that you used to do or hoped to do. Your long toil has taken a toll. Won't it ever end? Well, yes, it will, but not the way we want it to, because life will end one day. Frustrating, isn't it? We can never seem to, to catch up or get ahead, and, and life just spins on and on and on until the grave. Some of us have thus become cynical or pessimistic about life, while others still see the joys of life that are there and, and try to cling to a glass half full perspective. But either way, wherever we find ourselves today, I believe that we need to hear what Scripture has to say, what God's Word has to say to us today. Because you may be surprised to hear that the Bible actually agrees that life can be unbelievably frustrating. So if you would, please take a Bible and open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 1 with me. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the seats in front of you. 
And we'll open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The page number on those seat Bibles is on the screen for you. We'll be stationed in the book of Ecclesiastes together for the next few months. But this book is like no other book in the Bible. It is unflinchingly real, brutally honest. It can be a perplexing read at times, all while teaching us that life itself is perplexing. Author David Gibson uses the picture of how little kids play pretend all the time, turning living rooms or family rooms into, into houses and zoos and hospitals and palaces and battlefields or ball fields. But then growing up and, and living in the real world can be a, a confusing and painful process after this because it's not like that in the real world. Families can be hard to get along with. You can't be an animal in the zoo. Hospitals are, are full of suffering people, many of whom the doctors can't heal. Palaces that can be oppressive. Battlefields actually kill people. And athletes fail all the time. We need to learn to live as God's people in the real world and not a make-believe world. Enter Ecclesiastes, which helps shatter our naive, unrealistic views on life. Not everything is as clean and tidy or cut and dry as we like to imagine it. So verse 1 sets the stage for us. It says that these are the words of the preacher. Now in the original Hebrew, it says the words of Koheleth. And that's a nickname which comes from the word to collect or convene or to gather. If you notice that the title of Ecclesiastes, that actually comes from the Greek word for gathering, ekklesia, right? which you may recognize as a word used for the church in the New Testament. So there's this preacher, and he's speaking to a collection of people that he's gathered together. Who is he supposed to be, though? Well, look. It says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. If you know your Bibles, who's that? Solomon, right? Solomon, the, the richest, most powerful king Israel ever had. The Bible says, the wisest man ever. Now, many scholars make solid arguments that Solomon himself didn't actually write this book. And never names himself exactly as that. But see, there was an accepted practice in those days to write fictional autobiographies. And this wasn't meant to be deceptive at all. It was meant to be creative. So the, it's similar to writing historical fiction today or a movie being based on a true story. Those aren't meant to trick us. right? They're meant to engage our imaginations. So in Ecclesiastes, we're meant to imagine Solomon preaching these things to us. It's likely thoroughly based on teachings from Solomon, fully inspired by true events from Solomon's life. After all, who better than Solomon to teach us about the futility of life? From an earthly perspective, he had everything. And it wasn't enough. 
Thus, whether it really, it could have been Solomon, but we don't know for sure. But whether it was Solomon who wrote it or someone with a, a PhD in Solomon, I'm going to call him, I'm going to call the preacher Solomon through this series as that's who we're supposed to be hearing either way. We're supposed to picture Solomon saying these things to us. Ultimately, we still believe these are the words of God, which are written for our good and his glory. But man, the book starts like a bucket of ice water being dumped on our heads. As Solomon makes the claim that everything is vanity. Look at it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. I'll get into what this means, but first, I'll give you the, the big idea of this passage. That I believe that it's a we experience the vanity of life in our fallen world. Life in a fallen world is a vanity, and we experience this every day of our vain lives. I promise this is the last Greek or Hebrew stuff I'll give you today, but it is vital to understand what Solomon means by vanity. Because this word is used over, it's used 38 times in the book. Now, we don't even use the English word vanity much anymore, except when talking about washroom furniture. <laughs> but vanity is the Hebrew hebel, and it literally means breath, vapor, or smoke. So, picture a few months from now when you walk outside and you can see your breath in the air. Or picture blowing out birthday candles and smoke wafting up from them. It's there. You can see it, smell it. It's real, but then it's gone. It's fleeting. Now, imagine if someone told you, next time you see your breath, try to grab onto it. Or when the candles get blown off, when they get blown out, catch the smoke. How silly is that? That's the idea behind Hebel or vanity here. It's fleeting or temporary or transient. It's also ungraspable, insubstantial, ephemeral, elusive, enigmatic. That's vanity. It might appear solid, but it slips right through our hands. Now, some versions translate Hebel as meaningless. But I really think that misses the point here, because life isn't meaningless. Even life in a fallen world or life without God isn't meaningless. But life in a fallen world is a vanity. There's a, a deep futility about it. It's it's inevitably disappointing. I subtitled this series, Finding Wisdom and Joy in Our Frustrating and Fleeting Lives. Frustrating and fleeting. That's vanity. It's my best attempt at summarizing it. We experience the vanity of life in our fallen world. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And we may wonder, all is vanity? Really? Everything is frustrating and fleeting? 
I mean, the fact is, we believe, we know there are certain things that must not be vanities. God, for one. Right? It'd be blasphemous to label him as a vanity. But that's not Solomon's point. Okay, in verse 3, he'll talk about our lives being under the sun. That's another very repeated phrase in Ecclesiastes. We live our lives under the sun. But here's the thing. Not everything in existence is under the sun. There are things outside, above, or beyond our physical reality here and now. But in the here and now, under the sun, our human experience is largely frustrating and fleeting. So we don't want to soften the force of Solomon's words. Let's hear him out here first. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This is our lived human experience. Think of how fleeting our lives really can be. And your grandparents always said, time flies the older you get. Or it goes by so fast. And now you catch yourself saying it yourself. It's like a vapor coming and going. We chuckle at shirts that say, it's weird being the same age as old people. Surprise. Life comes at you fast. Blink and you're old. Or you're gone. Nothing seems to last. One pastor used the picture of eating cotton candy. It's basically sugar-coated air, right? You bite into it, and there's a sweetness to it but it's almost instantly gone. Vanity. Other scriptures back up Solomon here. For instance, in Psalm 39, his dad, David, said this, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath or hevel. How fleeting we are. And how frustrating our lives can be. It's like trying to grasp at smoke. We try to, to grasp at some lasting significance in life. I appreciate what David Gibson says about this. He says, if we try to gain control of the world and our lives by what we can understand and by what we can do, we find that the control we seek eludes us. Can't grasp onto it. He goes on, consider knowledge and understanding. In some measure, we can understand how the world works, but why does it always rain on the days when you don't bring your umbrella? Why do you feel low even when you can't really put your finger on a specific cause? Why do people you know and love die young or suffer long-term ill health while the dictator lives in prosperity into his old age? Or consider what we do with our lives. We can pour our whole life into something and it might succeed or it might fail. How much control do you really have over whether your job is secure or how healthy you will be or what will happen to interest rates and house prices over whom you will meet and what you will be doing in 10 years' time? 
Like you starting to really feel what Solomon is saying here? We know what he says is true. We just don't like it. And so we start playing our make-believe games, acting like we'll live forever or that we'll never suffer or that we're in control, imagining that, that what we do will leave a lasting mark of meaningful significance. And into this, Solomon steps and bursts all of our bubbles. Verse 3, look at it. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Who invited this guy? (laughs) And yet this is the critical key question for the entire book of Ecclesiastes. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What's the point? What do we gain? What should we aim for? Is life worth it at all? Now, like I said earlier, under the sun is talking about life in a fallen world. Romans 8 tells us that creation was subjected to futility, using the same word as vanity. It was subjected to futility. When did that happen? Well, way back in Genesis 3. When our original ancestors fell into sin, God put a curse on this world, and life has been depressingly deficient since then. Futility has seeped into every pore. Vanity has touched every aspect of life. And this is essential to us reading and understanding Ecclesiastes properly, because Solomon is talking about the world, not how God created it or designed it, but how we damaged it. And any hopelessness that we sense from Solomon is directly tied to the curse of the fall. Ecclesiastes deals with the world as it currently is, not as it should be and not how it will be. Life under the sun is is life apart from spiritual or heavenly realities, apart from God even. It's life at ground level. It's life as it's the world as we can observe it with our five senses. Thus, in this book, we viscerally feel the not yet of the already and not yet. Know that phrase? Already and not yet? That Christians are we believe are already saved and forgiven and redeemed and justified and so on, but we definitely do not yet experience all that in fullness, all of these things in their fullness. Christ has already come and died and risen, already our Lord and Savior and King, but he has not yet returned for us, restored the world, righted all wrongs. And those not yet can be painfully frustrating. Even after we have Christ. We're still in the middle of the story. We're not at the beginning. We're not at the end. And Ecclesiastes orients us to our place in the story right here and now. 
But perhaps the cheery or optimistic among us are not yet convinced. So let's consider Solomon's argument further, as I think he makes a pretty persuasive case. He gives us at least four reasons for why we experience life as vanity in our fallen world. First of all, it's unsatisfying. Life in a fallen world, it's, it all seems so futile, unsatisfying. You could also say unprofitable. It's the word they use for gain really means profit, something left over. Read the question in verse 3 again. What does man, and that's not just males, that's mankind. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? By the way, toil isn't just talking about our jobs or careers or even our school. This includes work that we would do around the home, from kids' chores to cleaning or landscaping. This would include even work that we do for fun or leisure, like hobbies or exercise. Some I don't want to do exercise for fun, but you know what I mean. Our toil refers to any human endeavor under the sun and it's unsatisfying. We can work our fingers to the bone, burn the candle at both ends, trying to make a difference, and what do we have to show for all our work? What lasting profit do we earn? And what do we really gain from all this? Because we do gain some things, right? We gain our paychecks, our means of living, our food, our savings, our retirements. We gain better health by working. We gain the satisfaction of jobs well done. But Solomon is asking, in the grand scheme of things, what does any of that actually give us? It's also fleeting. Money gets spent. Food gets eaten. Health deteriorates. We're all still going to die. And we can't take any of it with us. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? These words remind me of something Jesus asked in Matthew 16. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? In other words... You really can gain the whole world and yet profit nothing. None of what you can gain in this life can ultimately satisfy your soul. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. The next several verses then tell us, we experience the vanity of life in our fallen world as it is cyclical. You might say repetitive. Life is cyclical, like a hamster wheel or like a, a belt on a treadmill. Go round and round. Solomon talks about the vain cycle first of human generations in verse 4. It says, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. In the last 18 years, all of my grandparents have died. A generation goes. And in the same time frame, I've seen all my children be born. 
a generation comes. It's commonly understood we have seven living generations today in 2023. The so-called greatest generation is almost all gone. Anyone left is going to be over 100 next year. But then there's the silent generation, followed by the boomers, then Gen Xers, millennials, then Gen Z, then Generation Alpha, and they're going to need a new label in about two years. But this is sobering, just one thing here. Boomers, who will all be eligible for senior discounts soon, got their name as baby boomers because they were, not so long ago, babies. Kids, all of you, your generations are coming right now. This says they're up and coming. All of us adults are in the process of going somewhere along the way. One day, you'll go too. Not nearly as long from now as you may think. Meanwhile, in contrast to humanity's constant turnover, the world seems unchanged. Look at verse 4 again. It says a generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Like if I drove out to the Rocky Mountains today, I could see the exact same sights that my grandparents saw there. Or the, the Ottawa River, the Rideau River that flow near here, I can go them and see the, they have followed the same course for centuries now, the same path. So the earth itself is not so fleeting, but our experiences of it certainly are. Like when I die, the world will keep right on spinning just as it did before I was born. Vanity. Second, we see the vain cycle of the sun, and hence days and nights. Verse 5. The sun rises, the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. Living under the sun means living under the sun's constant racing through our skies. A friend of mine preached that if you ever feel like you get up in the morning, chase the same thing every day, go back to bed, only to get up and do the same thing the next day, you're in good company. The greatest celestial body does the same, getting up and chasing the horizon with all its might and then disappears only to reappear and start the cycle all over again. Pink Floyd sang something similar back in 1973. So you run and you run to catch up with the sun, but it's sinking, racing around to come up behind you again. The sun is the same in a relative way, but you're older, shorter of breath, and one day closer to death. Such vanity. Next, we see the vain cycle of the wind in verse 6. It says, the wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits, the wind returns. Even on Windless days, the wind is blowing somewhere, round and round and round. It just keeps swirling and whirling, always striving, never arriving. 
Like, think about it. The wind has these circular courses where it always blows, and yet wind never has a destination, a finish line. It has the track, but no finish line. Like we say, the wind died down, but really it just went somewhere else. Lots of movement, no progress, vanity of vanities. So sun, wind, and water drive all of our weather systems. I get the feeling Solomon's probably watching weather as he writes this. And so let's consider the vein cycle of water next. In verse 7, all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. We literally call it a water cycle. Water's constantly flowing down to the sea, and it's also constantly evaporating and condensating and raining and hailing or snowing, filling springs and streams and rivers all over again before flowing down again. Meanwhile, the sea is never full, it says. Despite the constant flow, nothing seems to change there. I heard someone compare this to trying to blow up a leaky balloon. All is vanity. Now, these are good things, right? The, the rhythmic cycles of sun, wind, and water are common graces from God. They keep us alive on this world. And yet we can experience even these good things as vanity because of our fallen nature's perspective. From under the sun, it can all just seem to go round and round, like we go round and round with no point and no end. The sea may not ever be full, but I'll tell you what is full, Solomon says, verse 8, all things are full of weariness. I noted this as a third way we experience the vanity of life in our fallen world, that it is wearisome. This life under the sun can be so wearisome. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. In other words, it's wearisome beyond description. More than one could say. Some versions translate this as boring. Life is weary and dreary. Sure, we can still experience exciting and enjoyable things in life. Plenty of them. And Ecclesiastes is going to go there too. But under the sun, the repetitiveness of nature and humanity can just feel so wearisome. Nothing has is, nothing is solved the dilemma of verse 3 yet. What do we gain by all our toil under the sun? It can make us tired just thinking about it. Vanity of vanities. The second part of verse 8 shows us life is all three of unsatisfying, cyclical, and wearisome. Look at it. It says, The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. So here's what you could call the vain cycle of human senses or desires. Like water constantly flows into the sea, stimuli constantly flows into our eyes and our ears. And we are never satisfied or filled either. Both our eyes and ears are in constant, in an endless intake process. Right now, 
Most of our eyes, our ears are taking things in, watching, listening, observing. But have you seen enough to be satisfied? Have, you, have your ears had their fill yet? And I'm not talking about my rambling on. You could have your fill of that if you want. Have you seen enough to close your eyes and never open them again? Will you never look on your loved ones again? Never go sightseeing? Will you never watch another show? Never look at your phone? Didn't think so. Or have you heard enough to plug up your ears forever? And you never want to hear music anymore. The voices of your family, your friends. No, our senses are never satisfied. There's always another sight to see, always another song to hear. When we lose our senses of sight or hearing, we say our eyes or ears failed us. They let us down early. Your brain will never stop craving more so your eyes and ears work is never done. Does that not sound wearisome at all? Endless, cyclical, disappointing, unsatisfying. Indeed, it's all vanity. In verses 9 and 10, we see one final vain cycle in the cyclical nature of history. And verse 9 is probably the most famous words in Ecclesiastes, and with them, I think we can hear, we can almost hear Solomon sigh. <sighs> what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. We have the saying that history repeats itself. And in this sense, it's true. Nations rising and falling, people making a, a great name for themselves or a horrible name for themselves, explorers discovering things, the strong oppressing the weak, wars with their victories and defeats, economies flourishing, collapsing, pandemics, natural disasters. We as a human race have been there, done that. We've seen it all before, we'll see it all again. Even, even fashion trends keep coming back in style every couple decades. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. And you may think, but, but we see new things every day, especially in our era of, of rapid technological advance and development. Uh, but, but what about this? This is new, we ask. Solomon thought we might say that. Verse 10. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. Now, he's not saying that, that nothing new ever gets made or invented. His point is that we can observe repetition here, patterns in history, or also that whatever we do create is just reinventing or upgrading prior concepts. For example, 
video calling on handheld devices is clearly something that never existed until recent years. Our ancestors would be astounded by what we can do today. However, wanting to communicate with people far away is nothing new. Before Zoom, it was cell phones. Before cell phones, it was landline phones. Before telephones, it was telegraphs. Before telegraphs, there was the mail system. We actually had to write stuff out by hand on paper. Before mail, there were messengers on horseback. Right? Our methods may have improved drastically, but we haven't changed at all, have we? We regurgitate the same themes. Nothing breaks the frustrating cycles of human experience. So we think, what am I actually contributing to the world? What difference am I making? Vanity. Philip Ryken concludes, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And if it ever seems like there really is something new under the sun, it is only because we have forgotten what happened before. Speaking of which, verse 11, last verse for today. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So here's one final way we can experience the vanity of life in our fallen world, and that it's forgettable. Life in our fallen world can be so forgettable. Or even if it's not, it's still forgotten. Ecclesiastes is going to discuss the forgettable nature of our lives quite a bit. It introduces the concept here. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. And if you think about it, we remember the tiniest fraction of things and people from history gone by. And the things of today and tomorrow will be totally forgotten by future generations. For example, how many people could you name who fought in World War II? One, two, five. Who were they? A grandparent? Someone they made a movie about? How much do you really know about them? What did they do during the war? Maybe you couldn't name a single person. It wouldn't be that surprising. Like, there's only one person in our entire church who knew any of the people who are named on this little plaque over here. Or the boards at the back there. And this was less than 80 years ago. One lifetime. 127 million people were mobilized during World War II. And we know that many. So you think that your great-grandchildren will remember you in 2100, 80 years from now. Think again. Truly, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So what's the point? 
All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? In this fallen world, ultimately, we don't profit from our toil because we eventually die and are forgotten. And we might get excited about all kinds of potential futures we envision for ourselves. A fulfilling career, a loving spouse, a happy family, a beautiful home, a nice retirement. But that will come and go for us just like it has for everyone else under the sun throughout history. Again, this doesn't make these things pointless or meaningless. But it does make these, them ultimately unfulfilling. Like I put it, frustrating and fleeting. We are limited creatures living brief lives that are largely outside of our control. Yet, we spend most of life trying to escape the constraints of our human condition. So Ecclesiastes takes us by the scruff of our shirts and shakes us out of our delusions. We're not God! We can't be God! We're not in control. We will all die one day. David Gibson calls us out saying, we avoid this reality by playing let's pretend. Let's pretend that if we get the promotion or see our church grow or bring up good children, we'll feel significant and leave a lasting legacy behind us. Let's pretend that if we change jobs, we won't experience the humdrum tedium and ordinariness of life. Let's pretend that if we move to a new house, we'll be happier and we'll never want to move again. Let's pretend that if we end one relationship and start a new one, we won't ever feel trapped. Let's pretend that if we were married or weren't married, we would be content. Let's pretend that if we had more money, we would be satisfied. Let's pretend that time is always on our side to do the things we want to do and become the people we want to be. Let's pretend we can break the cycle of repetition and finally arrive in a world free from weariness. Enough! Can we stop playing pretend already? You depressed yet? I've heard it said that Ecclesiastes means to depress us into dependence. Depress us into dependence. I'm sure that it doesn't want to make us clinically depressed or downcast or even pessimistic. But I would agree that Ecclesiastes wants to disillusion us with many of the things of this life that we get overly enamored by, distracted by, or put too much stock in. Let me say that again. Ecclesiastes wants to disillusion us with many things about this life that we get overly enamored with, distracted by, or put too much stock in. The fact is, some of us should be far more sobered up than we are over this fallen world. Some of us need to stop obsessively pursuing things that are merely vanity. Some of us need our naive hope in humanity 
ripped out of us and crushed. I want to offer you a final point that you won't see explicitly spelled out in the text today, but I believe that is a necessary implication from all that we've read. Because if there is a time and a place called under the sun, it makes us wonder, is there a time or place outside this fallen world? A reality that is not so overrun by the cursed toil of Vanity Fair. Yes, there is. See, we experience the vanity of life in our fallen world, which awakens us to our need for something beyond this world. The vanity of life in a fallen world awakens us to our need for something beyond this world. Or rather, someone beyond this world. We need the one who entered into our broken history and experienced life like we do, under the curse, before taking the full weight of the futility of our sin upon himself in his death. We need the one who broke the deathly cycle of human experience, the cycle of death, by rising again. Now there is something new in reality. We need the one who promised to give us a new heart and a new spirit. And now we confess that if therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In truth, we need the one who will set creation free from its bondage to corruption and futility. We need the one who promises to bring about a new heavens and a new earth with a new Jerusalem, which, by the way, won't even need a sun anymore. We need the one declaring, behold, I'm making all things new. Who was and is and is to come and who will Never be forgotten. The, the frustrating vanity of this world will not last forever. So we cling to our hope of a new world. And yet, and yet, and yet, that's not yet here. We're still in need today. When Jesus came, he didn't put an end, like an immediate end to all the, the vaporous vanity of life. He didn't instantly undo all the, the frustrating futility that we experience. Oh, he provided an eternal solution to our fallenness and for our fallen world. Yes, and yet, he didn't take his people out of this fallen world. We're still here. And so, we can rightfully feel the, the not yet of today and cry out with Solomon, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What do we gain by all the toil at which we toil under the sun? And then... 
May we come disillusioned and depressed into dependence on the Lord. Fully, trusting, trusting wholly in the King, the God in heaven who rules over the Son. Would you pray with me? Father, would you please open our eyes, open our hearts today. We need to see these things from your perspective. And as we do, would you draw us to yourself where we feel the the brokenness and the futility and the frustrating nature of life, even in ourselves. May we come clean, come running to you, Run to the cross where we see your mercy and grace for sinners like us. And there, at the foot of the cross, may, all, may we take all those the vain things that charm us most in life and sacrifice them to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Troy's going to come.